This week on Jam Session, it is an aligning of all our purest passions, which I know sounds like every episode of Jam Session, but this time it's really true. We've got The Crown, we've got Grey's Anatomy, and we have George Clooney coming up. There's no better feeling than a personal win, and the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Welcome to Jam Session. I'm Juliette Littman. I'm Amanda Dobbins. It's a week of passions. We've got a lot of meaty topics to dig into. We are going to talk about what happened on Grey's Anatomy last week. I was so excited. We are going to talk about the GQ profile of George Clooney written by, full disclosure, Amanda's husband. Great job by him. That's true. (laughs) Well, there's a reference to you in the story, so I felt we had to acknowledge it. Yeah, there is. I like, I take no credit for it. I read it this morning, just like everybody else. uh, And I'm biased. I had a nice time. But yeah, I do know the guy who wrote it. Continue. I had a great time. Beyond nice. A great, great, great time. Can't wait to get into that. Um, But we are going to start with talking about the crown because we have not discussed it with each other at all. If you want to talk about the TV making aspects, which you should want to talk about because it's pretty incredible. Check out Amanda on the watch with our friend, Chris Ryan. Um, We'll talk about TV a little bit, but I'm just so curious. Like Amanda, this is your favorite show. Is it your favorite show? Yes, absolutely. It's, it transcends my favorite show. I don't really think that I like absorb it as, as television and, in a normal way, to be quite honest. And that's okay because everybody has their passions. In fact, this is really just like a um, a, a weird enthusiasm exchange on this episode because <laughs> totally. I'm going to do The Crown for a while and then we're going to have my favorite podcast segment of all time, Juliet Talks About Grey's Anatomy. <laughs> um, but no, I, well, listen, if you've ever listened to an episode of Jam Session, you know that I have like an unhealthy interest and amount of information in my head about the royal family and specifically Princess Diana. And it's always been an interest of mine. I have read the Tina Brown book like many times and all the rest of the books several times because I had a weird childhood. And I have like basically been waiting my whole life for this season of television. <laughs> I, like I, it's, I don't mean to overstate it, but you also have to kind of understand where I am. Yeah. It's, it's big. It, it covers basically 1978 to 1990, essentially. Um, yeah. My understanding is that this is the Margaret Thatcher uh, yes. season. Yes. Um, you've watched episodes one, two, and three. So we're going to limit our conversation to one, two, and three, but that's totally fine because I mostly, I'm so curious. Like, what do you think about Emma Corrin as Diana? I think she's great. I think she's really, really good. And it's interesting, obviously playing one of the most famous people in the world and one of the most media famous people in the world is, um, a a challenge that's difficult and the casting is difficult and kind of taking on everything that we associate with princess Diana. It's very difficult for Emma Corrin. It's also just hard for the show to get right. You know, that's like, a you can't screw it up, but you're walking a fine line. I, I did realize while watching it though, that she's not famous anymore in the same way. Do you know what I mean? Totally. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. She, she encapsulates a period of time, I think in a, in a way that is now really ripe for nostalgia. And I think that also, um, Diana's fashion is so similar to like 
TikTok fashion, like her, sorry, not, not her high fashion. Obviously that is something that we can talk about in a second. Um, but like her casual fashion, I just feel like is actually like so Instagram friendly and, um, so many, like she wasn't making a statement, but now if you wear, if you wear a lot of the knits that you see her wearing as like Mm -hmm. a teenager, um, on the show, like would be a real like statement in a very palpable way. But I don't think most people who do that would even have a Diana as a reference point or have like the Royal knits of the, of the late of the eighties as like a reference point. And she's just, she's so influential, but it's not really an influence that's named that much anymore. Well, yeah, it's also her influence is even to you and me, we're not remembering Diana herself. We are remembering the memory of her, uh, that, I credit to Chris Ryan for that insight, by the way, because we were talking a little bit about this on the watch. But number one, she was a media creation. It's not like you and I ever met her. You and I aren't even British. Uh, we were like too young for <laughs> unfortunately. Most, unfortunately, <laughs> we were far too young for most of this. And so, you know, I learned about her through people magazines that I was reading after the fact. Like everything I know is either an interview that she did or something that was written about her or an image that I've seen like years later. So and and part of it is the influence that you're talking about is also a little bit kind of like the 80s of it all and just how things trickle down over time. Sorry to use a Reagan-esque phrase, but it is the 80s. So it is, it's interesting. I agree with you that we don't totally realize it. And in some ways, it makes it a little bit easier for Emma Corrin and for the show, right? Because yeah. they do have a she bit more license. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, because... Even what we remember, it's like, you remember it differently? Okay, like, tell yeah. me. It's funny. I I, um, I don't like her. I find her distracting. Okay. And I find that I'm like, while I find that um, the, the my big three, as previously discussed, of Josh O'Connor, Tobias Menzies, and Olivia Coleman, like, really get lost in the roles that they're playing and, like, morph into the royal family... I find with Emma Corrin, I'm so aware of her playing Diana and trying to like nail this Diana performance that I just like couldn't really get lost in it. And in the way that I find I found um, episodes one and two so enthralling. And I was just like, holy shit. I didn't know that Prince Charles, the surrogate father was killed by the IRA. Holy shit. I didn't know that. Um, it was so quite so contentious really from the beginning between the queen and Margaret Thatcher. Like I find myself getting lost in a lot of the other performances where I really don't with, um, Emma Corrin as Diana. And I saw a tweet that I think is like really, um, kind of like nailed it for me. And this is a tweet from someone named Sarah who once sent me glasses from Warby Parker when I really needed them. Thank you so much, Sarah. I've been following you ever since. And she tweeted, I can't put my finger on it, but I feel like this is more than the actress. This is more on the actress than Diana's weird sweater. Something about the length of her neck, the slope of her shoulders, keep even the gowns from looking like fashion. And I do feel like there's like a real, there's such like a visual um, definition of Diana for me that, like though Emma Corrin may have like nailed the accent and done a really good job with the voice. I just like, when I look at her, I'm just like, this isn't it for me. I don't know. It's just like, it's so weird. Well, so I think you've isolated a couple things that I want to unpack in terms of the visual aspect of it. There, there's a difference between a photograph and uh, like the select that yeah. 
like you have seen and then been, that has been passed down for 30 years and that has become iconography in its own right and a person moving like we've all taken Instagram photo, you know, sad home photo shoots. Like think about how many t- <laughs> terrible ass photographs of yourself. And then there's like that one magic moment um, that makes you look different, that makes you look cooler, that creates like a different experience like a and view of yeah. the world. Like, I mean, that's photography, you know, and it's sort of like a, um, a ephemeral art, but it is a real art form. So I, it's not surprising that like seeing the person moving around in the fairly tacky early 80s clothes, like, listen, she doesn't become a fashion icon in 1980. Okay. No. Like it comes, you know, it's over time. She's like 19 years old and the 80s were horrific. Though, let me just say, I think everyone's being way too hard on all the amazing Liberty prints that she's oh, wearing I, in the first thing. I love her clothes. I love her yeah. her sweaters. Yeah. I'm like chilly right now. And I'm like, I would die for yeah. one of those sweaters. Right. But so like that difference between what you remember in a, you know, now celebrated or uh, like iconic in the literal sense of the world and yeah. word instead of the Twitter sense of the word photograph and what you see when someone's acting out is like possibly the point in some ways. And, and it's certainly, I think the point of the show, which is especially in this season, less about let's understand British history through this institution and more about let's understand the people behind the institution. Like this is a, this is a character person first, uh, examination of the Royal family. We're not litigating empire. Right. Um, you, but, um, to your point about seeing the performance of Emma Corrin, I, I don't know that I totally disagree with you. And I would just ask again, whether that might be the point. Yeah. Like and to make her seem like an interloper. To make her seem like an interloper, to make her seem different. And, and not, I don't mean that in a negative way, by the way. Like, I feel like interloper is like a negative connotation. I just being like an outsider, I guess, or, or sort yes. of like a disruption. Yes. And I like, and I think those are distinct things and are both really important. And that was what was so breathtaking to me about episode three, which is the last episode I've seen. And is kind of like the Diana bottle episode, which just really crystallizes the extent to which if you're outside of the Royal family, you're outside of the Royal family. And I feel like, especially with, with Harry and Meghan, we've talked so much about what it means to like, try to deal with this like wacky ass, uh, just insensitive being a generous word institution, (laughs) like, you know, inhuman institution. And I thought that episode like really boiled that experience down in a way that was fascinating. But on the other side of that, and I haven't seen the rest of the season, so you have a bit more knowledge um, in this way than I do. But one of my understandings of Diana and from everything that I've read was that she, uh, she understood celebrity. And, and she idolized celebrity that I think, you know, the way that Tina Brown puts it that I think is like really perspective, really perceptive though. I don't know whether it's true is that, you know, she was a consumer of all the tabloids. And so she kind of, she knew the role that she was playing, but there is an element of performance to that. There is an element of being like caught up in the image. I think episode three does a very smart job of kind of bringing in the mail trucks and illustrating that, okay, if you have no one else in your life, which yeah. is often the case, and you know, celebrities really isolating. And then you start filling the void with the attention and the support that you actually can have access to. 
Um, even though that's sort of a Faustian bargain, but I like as she unfortunately. Yeah, I think happy. I think that there, if there is kind of like a, a, I don't want to say a lack of genuineness because I don't think that's it, but something that feels a little unnatural. Um, I think that that reflects certainly her experience and also what I understand to be like how Diana adjusted to the world. Yeah. I think that I just was like, I was so, I loved episode two so much and not only because they are all wearing so much barber and because of the beautiful (laughs) Scottish countryside, um, or I don't even know where they filmed that probably not in Scotland, but, um, I just reveled in the tete-a-tete between the queen and Margaret Thatcher. And I think that in episode two, the queen is made to look the ugliest, not, not her appearance, but just her, her character is like among the ugliest that she has seen, seemed on the show. And I thought Mm -hmm. like diving into that nuance while also having to face like this new order of this prime minister who, um, by all accounts was an absolute force. You know, I think, uh, many people think just an absolute devil, an absolute Uh, force is being generous. Yeah. But you know, it's just like, it's just so funny that we now, um, have like three principal women in the show. We went from having a world of men circulating around this woman. And then, you know, one, one person who like, we don't talk about that much, but who I think is excellent is Aaron Doherty, who has a really subtle, but like awesome performance as, um, princess Anne in this season and and also last season as well. But I thought her stuff with Philip is just like really miraculous in in the early parts of the season. Um, and, and I just think that like this world is now becoming populated by women and it's really cool. And I just felt like I was the least interested in, um, Diana, which was, which was like interesting to me. I was just sort of like, eh, I don't, I don't know about this. And then another thing I've just been thinking a lot about is, and then I talked to my mom about this a little bit, like, there, we discussed this when we did our Diana primer, like the narrative gift of having Margaret Thatcher and, and Princess Diana, like kind of rise to global prominence at the same time is like, so serendipitous. It's hard to believe it's real. Um, and I think that like, there's just like a, a really weird tension between like, you can only look at one thing. Right. And so like, should you be focusing your attention on Margaret Thatcher or one thing at a time? Of course, like, should you be focusing on Margaret Thatcher? Or should you be focusing on Diana? And this is not a value judgment at all. Just for me, in terms of the show, I was like just so much more interested in Thatcher and Diana and sorry, Thatcher and the queen. Um, and I don't know. I just like, I just like took a real disliking to Emma Corrin. I kind of feel bad about it. Like she didn't do anything wrong. She's very charming in all of her, her interviews. Um, I don't know. I just, I was like surprised by my own reaction to this. Yeah. I mean, I, I think as we discussed the fact that you have Thatcher and Diana and the ways that they challenge the the queen and the the differences in terms of what they illuminate about England or the UK, I should say, uh, in the eighties and the, frankly, the last time the UK was even like moderately relevant because of these two people. Um, and what they illuminate in juxtaposition is, is to me really interesting. And I think there's that, there's that moment in episode to, you know, once again, Peter Morgan is using a stag as a metaphor, loves to use a stag as a metaphor. <laughs> See also the queen. Um, and it's wonderfully done, but there's that shot at the very end where they, they've had, they have like one stag head in the dining room. And I just like, I, this is what they do. We're not going to get into the ethics of, of hunting on this, um, on this podcast. I'm not informed enough, 
Nor am um, I. But nor, they, nor do I want to be, if I'm being honest. Completely agree. But so they have one stag head in the dining room and the the whole family plot line is about who is going to get the stag and and match this, you know, fill the other wall, the wall opposing. And so at the very end, there's like the ceremonious, like with the music thing and like the stag head is replaced to face off against like the lone stag hand. And like that could be Margaret Thatcher. That could be Diana. You know, there's like someone else on the scene. So I think in terms of storytelling, it's really rich. I like if you think that Margaret Thatcher was more consequential for the UK and for the world at large than Princess Diana in terms of serious things. Yes. A hundred percent. Right. And I, like I, I Princess Diana. Serious? Ta- just like I just was just sort of like this is how I feel. But sorry, carry on. Well, I like, I think that tension is part of the issue, right? Because she becomes like a huge issue for the Royal family. And the show asks you to have empathy for the Royal family. Now, like we can talk about the usefulness of that exercise, because I think, as you noted, increasingly the absurdity of the Royal family is on display, even on this show, which is extremely Royalist. I mean, it is, it is (laughs) wild to be asked in episode two to to share the perspective, though you can't not share the perspective of Margaret Thatcher, who's like these people uh, have no culture and they are ridiculous. And what am I doing here? And that does seem like a pretty valid perspective of what we see in episode two. So on the one hand, it's it makes sense that the Margaret Thatcher of it all and the, and the modernization of it all is more interesting than this girl who is 19 years old and is flighty and causes a real headache in terms of superficial things. But it like, I don't know how the show handles like the media and the international aspect of it at all, because Diana becomes a life of her own. And I think that that's really fascinating in terms of everything that happens afterwards and celebrity and everything we talk about on this podcast. But you know, so far it's been pretty insular. It's been pretty like what's happening at the palace And I think what was happening in the palace was like Diana was a real pain in their side. Yeah. Was there anything in the, that you saw that was like, you were like, "Mm, not true or like, Oh, I didn't know that. I need to look it up. Like what were like some of your just sort of carnal responses? It was mostly that it was condensed, which that's, you know, the job of this show. Listen, I would watch like a hundred episodes of just this season because I think it's all so fascinating and it could be a sitcom. It could be a political drama. It could be a family drama. It could be, you know, like a sociopolitical documentary. There's, there's a lot to work with. It could be like eight sociopolitical documentaries, quite honestly, but there's just, there's such a, uh, it's a quick timeline in terms of, and it was a quick timeline in terms of Charles and Diana getting married. Like that definitely happened yeah. very quickly, but this happens in the span of like 10 <laughs> minutes and you're just kind of like, wait, what? And on the one hand that actually reflects kind of the whiplash nature of the yeah, real they thing. Didn't know I don't, each other. Yeah. And everyone was like, she's 19, but I guess, you know, we'll get carried away with the, the, the pomp and the fairy tale of it all. But I think, you know, there are some, some nuances or some, for example, her grandmother, by all accounts, that's a historically accurate portrayal of her grandmother, mm. which that's tough. Uh, but there, (laughs) but, but there are other family members and Diana's parents divorced. And that, um, was a major issue for her and her brother plays a role and her sister who does show up, but you know, there are other sisters. It's like, 
there is more complicated Diana family stuff that is necessarily excised from this. There is more complicated media stuff. And it just all moves a bit more quickly. Yeah. But what else is it supposed to do? It's a TV show. Right. And it's got, just got to keep it moving. Yeah. Yeah. And, and there's just also just so much to cover. I mean, the fact that they found a entertaining, though perhaps not completely accurate way to work in um, Diana, Margaret Thatcher and, and the queen into one weekend, mm-hmm. one holiday is like pretty, pretty fantastic. I mean, that's another thing where it's like, I, I don't really think that Diana pulled up in the car as Margaret Thatcher, like pulled away, you know, yeah. that's not really, which is literally what happens in the show. I mean, you know, it's, it's filmmaking, but yeah, I like, I do think all of those things like that Balmoral trip is for real. Like I, all of them are, it, it's all based in fact and small things like that lunch with uh, Camilla Parker Bowles does happen. And even they show the card uh, that, Camilla writes inviting Diana to lunch and the text you can see is like the actual text that is quoted in the biography. You know, there there's attention to detail as much as they can. It's, it's pretty jaw dropping. You know, it's just funny until we started talking about it. I didn't really think about how this really became the season of women. Like obviously it's already always centered around the crown around the queen who is the crown. Um, but I just feel like this season, as we're talking it through, like the Mm -hmm. weight of, Jillian Anderson and Emerald Fennell and Emma Corrin and Olivia Coleman and Helena Bottom Carter is so it's like just it's it's great like in a literal sense and it's it's pretty cool I don't know it's just um it also is really it's really fitting of the moment you know like Margaret Thatcher was like you know depends who you ask most people are going to say like she was incredibly you know heinous for England not most many some will just be like, she's, she's an icon, but like that is as representative of the moment as Diana, like the two just really go together. And I think to like feel that through the show is, is really something. Yeah. I mean, the show has always been uh, like, I think an exploration of like a young woman in a role that is traditionally for men. And to the extent that this is a study in the different uh, ways to, to have, or to use power. And Margaret Thatcher has one way and Diana obviously is going to have another. And the, and the queen probably has a third and is torn between the two. And uh, like, I, it, it's true to the show and also an evolution of the show. And I, I think, again, you just kind of can't make up like this moment in history and what those two figures like compared and contrasted can illuminate, um, not just about the UK, but about women in power. And yeah. And, and, you know, the media and how we talk about things and, and what we respond to. And so it's, it's pretty fascinating. Good job, them. Good job, everybody. Great stuff. I look forward to hearing more, more of your thoughts and, and feedback. And I'm excited for your crown journey, Amanda. Thank you so much. Thank you. Um, shall we talk about George Clooney? I'd love to. I mean, it's great stuff. What a joy to wake up on a Tuesday morning and just find a profile of George Clooney in GQ magazine. I mean, I can't ask for much more in this life. Um, first of all, this is the man of the year, men of the mm-hmm. year issue. It's mm-hmm. just an, an annual occurrence for GQ, usually accompanied by a party, RIP parties. Uh, yeah. I hope there's some kind of fun DJ set online um, mm-hmm. slash that doesn't sound fun <laughs> at all. Um, I mean... George Clooney is just like the de facto celebrity to me. It's just like, 
even for, for me, just because I love him so much, even more so than Brad Pitt, who is, you know, one of our animating figures. Um, of course, they're friends. It's part of both their charm. Mm-hmm. Um, George Clooney has always been lovable because of playing Doug on ER and also because of his politics, both of which are a big part of this piece. But uh, I just feel like this was like best case scenario for a celebrity profile. What stood out about it to you? This is slightly awkward. As we noted, your husband wrote this, but you know, just talk about his work. Yeah. Let me say <laughs> I was not involved in this process. And I know, but just reading it, you, no, read, you read it differently than I true. do. You're like, I know the man who wrote this. He sleeps in I, my I bed just, every night. I do want to say, so this, this was, these interviews were done over Zoom. <laughs> Uh, as the as the piece explains, for a number of reasons, uh, but you know, for the health and safety of everyone in this time, so like they were done in my house on Zoom, right? And afterwards, <laughs> I was thinking about the fact that um, George Clooney has such a distinctive voice that, like, I should have just stood outside the door and like listened to George Clooney talking like through the door because I I don't think Zach I think Zach. Uh, just uses the Zoom without headphones for these interviews. I don't think he wants to bring Bluetooth into this experience and screw it up even more. So I've, I regret not standing outside the door like a creep and listening to George Clooney talk. And I didn't do that. So I really, I have no behind the scenes information. Um, I just thought he was absolutely charming. And it, that's what you want from George Clooney, yeah. right? You want him to be a like Cary Grant, but for now. And just like a hugely charming, informed person that you want to spend time with. I honestly want that more from George Clooney than I want like a a, a movie directed by George Clooney at this point or a movie starring George Clooney. You know, there are many movies starring George Clooney that I really enjoy, but I just am happy for him as like capital G, capital C, George Clooney. And what's nice about their profile is that he seems to know that too. And he's just like, let me give you some more George Clooney stuff. And let me just like tell you about how much I love my wife for a while. And let me just tell you how acting works. I thought that stuff was so fascinating. I love it when really talented people just like switch into their genius mode and are like, I'm going to tell you this and I'm going to tell you this. And he tells a story about ER and he tells another story and he's just like annotating the scene and it's like talking to someone who just knows a ton of stuff. I, I thought that was fascinating. Um, yeah, he um, he shares an anecdote from Steven Spielberg where Steven Spielberg tells him to like stop moving his head so much. And I loved that because Doug Ross did move his head a lot, especially when talking to Carol. He was sort of, mm-hmm. it was sort of like he was always trying to like burrow into the moment. And it's like, dude, you don't need to. You're Doug fucking Ross. You're a wonderful yeah. pediatrician. You're a renegade pediatrician. Um, he also... Uh, I'm so happy that Zach got him to talk about the time he gave his 14 friends each $1 million in cash. Mm-hmm. And yeah. on, honestly, the details are so much better than you ever could have hoped for. The story came out, I think like almost two years ago, we talked about it at the time. Um, I think Randy Gerber shared this information, right? Yes. And then I think we talked about it on jam session and then Zach knew about it. And then Zach wanted to ask George Clooney about it. So I'm going to credit you, Juliette Littman with that particular. Thank you. Congratulations. (laughs) Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Zach. Um, so George Clooney, like basically impersonated Danny Ocean one day. Although I think the other takeaway is like, Oh, Danny Ocean is probably a lot like George Clooney. Um, Mm -hmm. and he got a florist van that he like rented for the day and drove to a unnamed location in downtown Los Angeles where there's just a huge vault, like just stacks of cash, literally. It's kind of like the way they portrayed um, the vault in Die Hard 3. You know, there's like all that cash. 
Well, I, I guess the fault I was imagining, I'm, I skipped ahead because there's an Ocean's Eleven reference in here too, but keep telling the story. You're doing great. I won't interrupt. Um, he goes down like multiple levels below ground and just gets tons of cash and then puts a, a million dollars into um, 14 different Toomey suitcases. He says that it's much lighter than you would think. Um, mm-hmm. And then he loads it into the van and he drives away and then he gives his friends the money. And yeah, the reference, the, the correlation to ocean 11 is shocking. It's stunning. Right. Right. I mean, there is like, I can see the duffel bags of money in oceans 11 being carried out of the Bellagio. And it is absolutely that. And they also commandeered a SWAT car in that, like it's sort of Mm -hmm. like very similar where it's like, it got like a different van. Um, also underground, just the whole thing is like, it's hard to believe it's real. Like if George Clinton is like, actually, I made that up. That's not how I did it. And he just was like, this is the anecdote I'm going to tell. I also wouldn't yeah. be surprised because it's like so close to the movie. Yeah. He has a real amazing. awareness of, of, of how to perform this stuff and what people want from George Clooney. I, you know, I think there's the, the other, there are a lot of great anecdotes. I really enjoy the anecdote about like the George, the angry George Clooney letters, like archive where he just writes things to people that he's mad about. I relate to Amazing. that. Amazing. I love that. Um, it reminded me of yeah. Greenberg, the movie. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But um, <gasps> this, the anecdote that opens the, uh, the, the piece is like, it's, it's not a fun anecdote. It's about George Clooney's uh, motorcycle accident. Also a few years ago that was very serious. And, you know, I, I, he had like neck surgery recently, like the day of the interview as a result of this. But I think like relatively interview the day they get a neck surgery, by the way, I think Zach was kind of like, you okay, you want to reschedule this? But I like, I think he was great. And, you know, and I think he talks about the initial injury is in Syriana and he talks about how he's just kind of been living with pain and, and with these setbacks for several years. So I suppose he's like somewhat used to it yet another George Clooney thing. But so he tells the story about the motorcycle accident and basically being like, I thought I briefly thought I was going to die. And I did think about how, as I was like most likely dying, there were all these paparazzi around me taking photographs. And like these people were using my last moments on earth for entertainment, which is like a, a, a profound and like scary insight and echoes of princess Diana for sure. Just to kind of thematically yes. tie this podcast together. Um, you know, but then he adds that grace note, which is the other thing he remembers is what all the paparazzi were saying to him as they were taking these photographs and they're just going, a George Clooney. And <laughs> like, <laughs> he's taking a, like a deeply traumatic and really scary personal moment and like making it accessible for everybody. You understand it. And also like, he makes it okay. Even yeah. within that context of that one interview. And that's like, that is... I don't want to say it's a skill because the, do whatever you want with your experiences. But to me, it's so emblematic of the George Clooney experience of like, we're going to learn something and then like, it's going to be okay. Part of this is that we are, uh, we're here to enjoy ourselves. There's another great anecdote. Like how many summers do we have left and why would we work during the summer as, as a result? I, I mean, preach George <laughs> Clooney, but it's just so good. It's, it seems like it's nice to be him, you know, and he knows that and is also willing to communicate that. And I don't know, I needed a dose of charm. So I think also, um, the way that he just like clearly puts people at ease is like such a big part of his charm as well. Yeah. And that's like part of what you're saying of like taking yes. a trauma and like making it digestible for everyone around you, not just yourself. Yes. So yes, 
He's just everything I want out of a celebrity. And uh, I'd love to see his stack of, of angry letters. It's just so good. Same. Me too. He should feel free to release those. Um, I did note that GQ also has a 35 minute video of him breaking down his most iconic characters. Looking forward to watching it. I did a, a brief scrub through ER not included. I understand <laughs> it's not a movie. I get it. However, it is definitely his most iconic character. He's, I mean, outside of George Clooney being the most iconic character, Doug Ross is number two. I mean, probably number three. I would say fine. Danny Ocean. I'm going to go with number two, but like it's number three. I think that George Clooney himself understands it. There's a lot of ER in this profile. Like you had to be happy about that. I loved it so much. I loved it. Yeah. Fucking loved it. It's a great, great, great show. Okay. Um, He also had a note that's a great transition into our final topic, which is what's currently happening on Grey's Anatomy. And he just had, he was talking a lot about the pain that he felt after, um, or during the accident he had on Syriana, which was his first sort of like really big medical scare where he had spinal fluid leaking through his nose. And this is what George Clooney said. Basically, the idea is you try to reset your pain threshold because a lot of the time what happens with pain is you're just constantly mourning for how you used to feel. First of all, I found this really profound and deep and Mm -hmm. um, really applicable to so many things. And my main response was, wow, that's something Meredith Grey would say in one of her voiceovers at the top of Grey's Anatomy. And um, (laughs) I could really see her saying it. They could just add it in. It's not too late. And um, man, is there a lot happening in the world of Grey's Anatomy? It's pretty, it's pretty exciting. I don't really know. Do you know anyone else who watches other than me? No, I don't. At least if they (laughs) do watch it, they aren't updating me about it, which is fine. I, I, that's, I want you to keep updating me about it. Can you share with the world what happened last week? Yes. Last week, Grey's Anatomy had a two-hour season premiere. It was three hours if you include the crossover with Station 19, which shares the showrunner, Krista Vernoff. Um, the show is set in April of 2020, which in Seattle, which um, obviously aligns with the kind of first wave outbreak of coronavirus, which the epicenter was Seattle at first, state of Washington. And they they take on COVID. Um it's a two hour premiere and it kind of, what happened with last season in real life because of COVID is that they had five episodes that were unaired or that are not fully shot because of the shutdowns. And so they took the footage that they never used and used those as like kind of like flashbacks and caught everyone up on the last few months. It was really well done. Um, the episode reminded me of the season seven finale, which was the last episode that Christopher and the current showrunner wrote when oversaw when she was head writer another two hour banger where like everyone's in the hospital, like doing stuff. That's when the show's at its best. Right. I will say that season seven finale is also tragic. There's a shooting that sets off all these events. It's also a miscarriage and a surgery. It's wild. Check it out. Anyway. Um, <laughs> that's when the show is at its best is when people are just like in the hospital doing stuff. It was, it, it was great. Also just like my personal anticipation for this was so high last week. Um, as like part of the election hangover, I spent like one morning, I spent like 45 minutes watching a video of Debbie Allen, Chandra Wilson, Ellen Pompeo, and Christopher Vernoff just like talking about the legacy of Grey's that they did for Variety. Um, and so anyway, it was great. Like it was just a great show. And I had gotten text messages from our colleagues, Jeff Chow and Chris Ryan the night before, like just to like feel me out to see if I had watched yet. And I texted them like when I had like 15 minutes left in the show and I was like, great episode. Love the Grey's is back. I'm so excited. And then, um, you know, I keep watching and the very final scene Patrick Dempsey returns. And I just mm-hmm. lost my mind. Oh my God. I lost it. I was weeping so hard. I felt a sense of joy. I had not felt in so long. 
And then again, when I read this George Clooney profile, but like just so happy to see this man. Okay. So I have a question. Okay. Did Mick, he's McDreamy, McDreamy. right? Yeah. Yeah. And well, there was a McSteamy and it's McSteamy been a long time. as well. I, he's dead, but so I, is McDreamy. What? Well, right. I was going to say, didn't McDreamy die? Yes. McDreamy died. So Meredith at the beginning of the episode is sitting on a rock in Malibu, looking out at the ocean, very ponderously talking about like tidal waves. And then that's the first scene. And then the last scene, she's back on the beach and she looks over to her left and you see a man with dark hair, like yelling Meredith. And then they do like a drone shot above. You don't see his face. I was like, is it a body double? I do that all the time on the show. And then it turned out to be him. She says, I miss you. She yells, I miss you. And he goes, I know they're far apart. I think like he represents the afterlife. She's on the precipice. Turns out Meredith got COVID. So she was like in like a purgatory, like maybe dead state. And that's how she sees Derek. But it's just the fact that Patrick Dempsey had a huge falling out with the show. And Grey's Anatomy is known for having falling outs with its stars. But, but nine months ago, we were talking about the absolutely horrendous, horrific, appalling, offensive way that Justin Chambers left the show. So to see Patrick Dempsey return was just so thrilling. Okay. Is there, is this a one-time only? Like no. the dream? What? Okay. What the Juliet? The man's dead. <laughs> He's on at least three episodes. Apparently he takes on a storytelling role. I'm doing air quotes. Okay. So he's going to become like the narrator. I think he might. Yeah. Or something. Okay. All right. There's there's so much more that's for me to tell you about. The other thing is the day after (laughs) deadline got the exclusive Q and a with Ellen Pompeo, Patrick Dempsey and Christopher Anoff. And like, there were all of these quotes, particularly from Patrick Dempsey, but from really all of them about how much, the atmosphere and the set had changed and they kept being like, it felt so safe since the last time Patrick was here. Like it, like it's just a different, it's different now. And like, they kind of were using COVID to like, we felt safe PPE, but they were really like shit was bad back then when Patrick got written off and now it's a lot better. And I thought that was really fascinating. There's a lot of these quotes floating around about like old grays and sort of middle period grays. There's like so many different, eras and then Krista Vernoff also gave an interview being like the reason Izzy didn't get a send-off was because Katherine Heigl didn't show up for her last episode and then Katherine Heigl refuted that so it's just like all this mud being slung in the press but meanwhile Grey's Anatomy is a fucking great show why did you all stop watching so <laughs> let me ask a little bit more about like the feuding in the press please do because Shonda Rhimes is no longer involved in any of this is that correct um I think that she's in, involved in name only, but she's moved on. Like she's focused on her Netflix work. Okay. But her name is still on the credits. Right. But she's not involved in the press or any of these decisions. No. Are any of these quotes like being interpreted at subtweets at her or Great is question. it just that it's all, it was a mess and they kind of had a reset. Great question. The way that I understand Grace to be run previously before they had like a distinct showrunner, Christopher Anoff was in the writer's room seasons one through seven, head writer. She left after season seven. She was gone. She came back season 13. And it's been very good since she's been back. It did have a bad stretch. I think that the implication is that while Shonda was working on the broader Shondaland suite of shows, specifically adding scandal and how to get away with murder, she wasn't paying as much attention to Grey's. And the woman who was de facto running it. And at the time, people would say that Shonda wrote the season premiere and the season finale. And that was it. And the woman who was running it was this woman named Stacey McKee. Based on my own sleuthing, I feel like they're throwing shade at her. 
But I think okay. it's also a, a little bit at Shonda. But I will say people also like the whole cast and Krista go out of their way to be like to credit Shonda with so much. But the other like major force now is Debbie Allen, who everyone seems to credit with like being a really important part of the show and a mentor for a lot of um, directors. And she talks about how on her own, she decided like a few years ago, Debbie Allen, one of her roles as an EP is to hire all the directors was to do 50% um, non-white men. And so she like just sort of like took it up on herself. And I have to say, I learned a lot about Debbie Allen the last few weeks and just my anticipation from Grey's Anatomy. And like, I, I would like to nominate her for like the human hall of fame. She seems like incredible <laughs> and really influential. <laughs> so. Is there anything else that you'd like to share about your emotional reaction to the return of McDreamy? I just felt so much joy, honestly, in a way that I didn't know that I was lacking. Like it was, I was so happy and just, I was falling. It was Friday morning. It was raining. I was in my apartment. I was just like, this is incredible. And I'm so grateful that like they did this. And I just, I just felt so much joy. And I was just like, I love television. Like I just love television. (laughs) I love storytelling. I don't know. Thank you for letting me talk about this. Like it just was like such an exciting thing to happen in my TV life. I don't know. I just loved it. Juliet sent me a selfie of her reaction to McDreamy in real time, which definitely involved you crying and also some great glasses. You looked great. (laughs) So I, this is all real. This is not like made up. We're not exaggerating for content. This is real. And I'm just, I'm really glad that you have it. I think that McDead McDreamy in a storytelling role seems objectively insane. insane, but I'm thrilled that it means a lot to you. And I look forward to hearing how it develops over the course of the season. (laughs) Thank you so much. Another rumor is that a lot of people are coming back for one final episode. Um, We'll see if that happens. I don't, I don't know, but it's just funny. I just love, I just love a medical drama. What what will fill the void once Grace is over? This has to be the last season. I mean, there's no doubt about that. Only you can know. It does seem like there are still a lot of medical dramas set in Chicago and other, you know, great American cities, uh, on network television. I don't watch any of them. So, I mean, this is the end of the great network serial, right? Like no other show will go on for 17 seasons with 22 episodes a year. So this is like the end of a really important part of my TV life and America's culture. That's absolutely true. And, and they're going out in style with a dead (laughs) character (laughs) narrating in in flashbacks. Oh my God. Thank you for coming on this ride with us. We're just full of passions. Um, we will keep checking in on the crown and, and other assorted television ventures of ours and, and interests. Uh, and we will be back next week. <laughs>